Hello and welcome to episode 11, I think it is, 11 of the Wind Up podcast. I'm your host, Mike of MTGA Wines. It is good to be back. Uh, We missed last week. I apologize. Uh, Normally, we would have done a live episode. I was unavoidably detained. uh, For those that follow our other social media networks, uh, I had a long drive on Wednesday last week uh, getting a Topanga, a beautiful, beautiful uh, Volkswagen bus, old school, so happy. She drives like a dream. Uh, But... For those that know anything about those old VW buses, they pretty much top out at like 60, maybe 65 miles an hour. So it was a long drive home uh, with her. And on top of that, to make matters even a little bit more complicated, uh, I've been working with a a thrown out back for the last uh, few weeks and sitting for that period of time. It just it was not in the cards to sit down and, and record a show and, and do all the things. Uh, and in that same light, if you're watching this video or if you happen to hear a little like wince as we're going, that's because I twisted and I moved a little bit too fast. So I'm going to try my best uh, to get through this uh, as comfortably as possible this week. But regardless of all that nonsense, we have a great show for you. This We're going to get into our April Q&A today. We're going to dive into a few different topics Uh, Just based on questions that we received in the seller, questions that we received via social media. Uh, Just a reminder, if you have a burning question that you would like to have answered uh, in regards to winemaking, the wine business, the hospitality industry, anything of that nature, submit them. Uh, You can throw them into the comments. You can slide into our DMs. Any of those things will work just fine. And we'll try and wrap up as many of them into our end of the month show. Uh, the last Wednesday of every month, we try and do this Q&A and dive into some of these questions to you know, really get uh, further into uh, the industry and kind of what we chat about here. Uh, in that same light, this is a great way to help kind of produce content. Uh, a lot of these, in fact, there's one of them uh, this week that is definitely going to be dedicated to an entire episode. In fact, I'm pushing back... Uh, another topic for for one of the topics we're going to just lightly touch on today. Uh, we're kind of late to the game when it comes to the discussion of this, and this is going to be the whole uh, uh, Dylan Mulvaney and her impact on Bud Light and Anheuser-Busch and InBev and how that's impacted the beverage industry as a whole. Um, we're going to touch on that, but I'm, on the second week of April, we are going to dive into that in a lot more detail. And realistically, I think the, the conversation that um, no one's having when it came to that. And yeah, I know we're like a month behind current events. Sorry, I don't read the news much because it's too damn depressing. But we're going to touch on that and we're going to have a whole episode dedicated to that because it was a great question that I had while I was in Houston last week. Uh, with some friends and doing a wine uh, tasting and event, and they were curious as to how that was kind of shaken down into uh, even the wine world, even though that was obviously beer. Uh, it still has an impact on kind of marketing and sales and everything else, and since we've seen kind of the fallout of that. So we're going to dive into that. We're going to talk a little bit more about the wine business. We are also going to actually a couple questions about the wine business. And I think that's where we'll start. We will start. Then we'll get into more of the current events side of things as what's been happening recently kind of in and around the world of wine. So let's get this started, shall we? 
Uh, and this is a great question. And this is something that this first one here is why do small producers stay small? Why not bring on investors? Why not try and grow? Why not try and get your wine out and about and around the country and restaurants, retail shops, the whole nine? And this is something that we we touched on in the uh, wine business episode. What episode was that? I believe it was episode nine. Uh, so a couple, a few weeks back. And it was, um, to be honest, it's just a you know, just a stylistic consideration of what type of business you want to run. I mean, for me personally, you know, from a business standpoint, I like being the small business. I like having direct access to the customers, whether it's our club members, folks on our mailing list, um, the referral sources, whether it's a concierge or a driver that brings us or sends guests our way, or if it's, you know, one of our club members sending their friends, texting me and saying, hey, we have friends coming out. We want to make sure that they get to experience Napa like we did. Can you host them? So I got to adjust my back already. It's been all five minutes. I'm already like, Ugh. I'm going to have to stretch after this. Um, and I actually, we ha had dinner with some friends, uh, one of our good, good friends. He is down in the, um, shoot, he's getting his, uh, shoot, his MBA, right, uh, down at Stanford. Um, and his, he's kind of keying in on some things in the wine industry in particular. And I'm in the, one of these positions where, and, and I have a good friend that does this. It's, it's hey, we want to create volume. We want to you know, be everywhere. We want to sell this business for millions or tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars at some point. And we're just kicking out product. We're just kicking out product. It's got to be good, obviously, because it needs to, you know, fill some sort of void. We have to hit a certain price point. We have to do all these things. And that's just frankly not the game I want to play. Um, it's funny when I, I run into him every once in a while. He's like, and the question he asks every single time is, how much wine are you making these days? And my answer is always like, oh, you know, we're sitting around that, you know, 1,200, you know, 1,000, 1,200K mark. You know, still pretty small. And, and there's that, like, brief pause of like, hmm. And I, and I don't know, I don't want to put words into his mouth, but knowing that he's, you know, that kind of serial entrepreneur trying to ramp up production and make as much wine as he can and get it everywhere as quickly as he can, uh, you know, good on him. It's just a different style of business. For me, there's just something about walking into our cellar when, you know, we have, you know, 50 barrels in there and I can slowly kind of taste through things. I can host a couple of groups that day. It's a little bit more... I don't know, it doesn't feel like as much of a grind as working for some of the big producers that I've worked for in the past. And I think that's why a lot of people stay small is they want to just be able to do what they want to do. They just want to make great wine, make a good, comfortable living. We don't need to be filthy rich or anything like that. It's just we're just having fun doing it and it's all good. Uh, I do know that for a lot of small producers, too, they don't want to answer to anybody. They want to have full creative control and license to do what they want to do when they want to do it. So they're not going to bring on investors. They're not going to bring in outside capital. They're going to because then yet you add a complexity to this. Um, believe me, I, I have hosted many people um, who have come out, uh, frankly, under the guise of like, "Oh, we'd love to taste your wines and you know see what they're all about." And it turns out that they're looking for small brands to invest in, and we have a tough conversation of, sorry, I'm not interested in your money. 
it's it's kind of hilarious actually and i tell them point blank i'm like listen if you're getting in, if you're really serious about investing in a winery you need to understand that the likelihood that you make a boatload of money is basically zero i don't i mean unless it's just a brand that is on fire you know it's one of those exceptions that proves the rule um, i've seen too many people too many people just dive in like oh it'd be so great to own a chunk of something and they get into it and seven years goes by and they have not seen a dime from it. They might get that case of wine, uh, you know, as their dividend, basically, as being a supporter. But it's, it's more of a lifestyle thing. Um, you know, you do, did have someone like uh, Hall St. Helena. I think that's how they raised a lot of their money to build that St. Helena facility, if I remember right. I might be speaking out of turn there. But it's why Hall has kind of this ownership group that invested x amount of dollars i don't know how it broke down i never saw how you know i'm sure there were different tiers to it and all that kind of stuff but they have like a an ownership weekend and it's like hundreds of people show up um to like come out grab their case of wine they get special like discounts and deals and things of that nature um, at least they used to that's how it how it always was i don't know if they've changed really since then uh, but you know as a result, if you have a bunch of shareholders, especially for the ones that have a large stake in your business, now you have to answer to somebody. And quite frankly, I don't want to answer to anybody. And I know there's a lot of other small producers that stay that way as well. They're just like, you know what? It's nice just to be able to do what we do. And I don't even want to, oof, I don't even want to deal with it. Um, for those that don't know, this is actually uh, kind of a, a funny, but maybe even tragic story, at least for one person. Um, back, at, this is probably around like late 90s, uh, early 2000s, when, oops, sorry, I didn't turn off my phone, there's a ding. My bad, my bad. Um, back in the late 90s, my grandfather actually sold what was 5% of his interest in, in Con Valley Vineyards. Uh, to another gentleman, and that's what helped fund the new cave getting built. Uh, I, from what I understand of the story, both my mother or father didn't really know that that was happening, and it just kind of happened, and then away we went. Um, I That gentleman, I believe, has since been bought out. He might still have that 5%. I honestly don't know. This is how hands-off I am with the family business. But now all of a sudden you have this minority shareholder that now is looking for a return on that kind of investment. And it was it was a little hectic there through the 2000s and in early 2010s trying to figure out, you know, hey, like, here's the reality of this business. Like, we're sorry, we're kind of sorry that he, you know, did this uh, because it's something that one, we probably wouldn't. I, I think my folks were both on the, the side of like, this is probably something we wouldn't have approved in terms of like a sale within the, like, the company. Uh, we would have tried to figure it out a different way. Um, but now it was someone who was like, hey, we need to, this, you know, really, even though he's a minority shareholder, still wanted to have, you know, you know, a, a say in, in the, uh, in the operations. And, and I've met the guy a couple of times, nice dude. Um, I hope it worked out for him. I have no idea. This is, you know, every time someone's asked, like, oh, why don't you work for your folks? Reasons like this, you know? Because there's there have been little things that have happened, and this was kind of a bigger thing, I suppose, that uh, needed a lot of ironing out in the long run. And from what I understand, it got sorted out eventually, which is good. Uh, but it was one of those moments, like all of a sudden, you've added a layer of complexity to your business that wasn't there before, and now you have an outside influence that is 
can either be a thorn in your side or maybe a great asset. And it, this definitely, I think for them, was fell kind of in the middle there. Um, and for MTGA, for those that have offered to like invest in our business, I simply say, hey, if you really want to invest in MTGA, buy the wine. That's the best thing you can do. And for any small producer, this is something I, I recommend is if you really want to be a part of it, buy the wine and support the brand, join the wine club, join the allocation list and let them help them pay the bills basically through that support. And you get an instant dividend in the form of wine. I know that's not exactly what you're looking for necessarily with an investment. You probably want more of a return, but it's a, it's a lot more likely that you're going to enjoy that wine rather than maybe or maybe not making X percent, you know, based on your financial investment. So uh, staying small, you know, from a business sense is just it simplifies things. It allows us small producers to kind of do what we want to do and not have to answer to anybody, which is the best. It's so nice. It's so nice not having to answer to people. It's it's so great. All righty. Uh, question number two, the hardest thing about the wine business. What is it? <laughs> and this might surprise you. Uh, we, we talk about harvest as like this crazy period of time, right? Where from late August into through October, we are just, it's gangbusters, right? It is 24 seven. You're just going, going, going. If you've ever been out here and some of you have, for those that have come and visited with me, um, in the, you know, in the cellar, like you've probably, if you've been out in October, like you've seen me. It looks like I rolled out of bed. I'm in torn up jeans. I'm I might have been half covered in purple. I'm usually sipping on a whiskey by that point, and I'm just like you can, you can just see it, you know. And it's such a crazy time. But that's not the hardest thing. Harvest is actually as as tough. It's a lot of hard work and it's very very tough and it's a grueling schedule for a few months. But that's not the hardest thing, you know. Realistically. The winemaking's it's tough and it's very hard to do well, but the hardest thing, A number one, no matter what anybody says, is selling your wine. Once you have wine in bottle and it's time to get it into people's hands, selling it is the A number one hardest thing. Bar none, there's nothing else that's harder because now you're competing. And, and we do say out here, you know, there's very much a like rising tide raises all ships kind of mentality when it comes to the wine industry. I want people to drink wines that my friends are making uh, from other small brands that I love to support, all that good stuff. But even then, getting people on board with buying your wine is challenging, which is why it takes so long to actually build a brand and do well within the wine industry financially and make a living at it because man, I've seen, I mean, talk to anybody who's been in the wine industry for a while, the number of small labels that we have seen come and go because people are like, oh, we're just going to make wine and it'll sell. Guess what? No, it's not. Napa, Napa wines are among some of the most in-demand wines in the world and brands still fail because they don't have a business plan or a sales plan or a strategy, anything resembling any of that. You know, I have talked to some of my growers who have started some of their own labels in the past, and they just, they're just inventory is just stacking up and stacking up. And they're like, what do we do? How do we sell it? And I'm like, well, do you have a tasting room? Okay, no, no tasting room. Great. So you have a website. I saw that. That's nice. How many people are ordering from your online shop? Obviously, it's not many because you got inventory laying around, right? 
Two, are you distributing the wine? Are you selling it through retail shops, restaurant? No, we're not doing that. Okay, so the two major sales channels that we use, the wholesale side of things, as well as the direct side of things via like allocation list and wine club, you're simply not doing. What do you, did you expect like to make a wine and then people are just gonna kick down your door and you're gonna sell out of it immediately? The only time that really happens, if you come out of the gate, as much as I hate saying this because everyone should at this point know my opinion on wine scores and how irrelevant they, I think they really are realistically, but but they still work, is if you get that 100 point score like out of the gate, that'll do it. That'll do it. You have a, an all-star winemaker behind it. You have a, a high score to get you started and then that gets you traction. But that still leans towards, you know, just the marketing towards that allocation list or that wine club. And you're kind of working towards that. Um, and maybe that bleeds over into the wholesale game as well, depending on where your price point sits. But that's even that's still a plan. That's still you're doing something. You're trying to, you know, promote your product. But there are folks that just don't do that. And for those of us, like I don't get my, none of our wines have been rated or reviewed. And even those that do get their wines rated or reviewed, it's still hard. You know, I, I, there's a, a, one of my best friends makes some killer wine. Um, and they have, I think, a 100 or 200 person waiting list for like their top end wine. Do you know how rare that is in this day and age? You know, pre like finance, like 2008 financial crisis, I mean, you used to be able, I mean, the wait list for things of the you know, high end Napa wines, whether you're talking Harlan or Screaming Eagle or, you know, any of these guys, um, the wait lists were outrageous. You know, I, we had other friends, you know, family friends who, you know, post that recession were like our waiting list is either gone, cut in half, or we just have now we have wine to sell, which we haven't had for like the better part of a decade. You know, that kind of stuff happens. And now we're having to make up that ground and actively sell again. And that gets really, really tough. It's it's the hardest part because you're having to compete in some way, shape or form. You know, you have to provide some sort of value beyond the wine these days. There's too much good wine out there. I mean, not that that's a bad thing, but there's so much good wine out there that how are you differentiating yourself? How are you taking care of your customers? How are you, you know, distinguishing yourself and getting your label to stand out so that people want to buy it? How are you enticing them or courting them to bring in new customers? And that is the hardest thing. Are you providing, are you, are you doing the JCPenney model of like, hey, our wine is normally this, but we're selling it for this basement bargain deal. Are you doing the cult wine thing and saying, hey, we got the fancy, you know, name brand winemaker. Uh, they make 100 point wines all the time. They're working for us now. Um, are you doing the, hey, we're hitting this price point and we want this wine to be in every grocery store in the US or a steakhouse in the country or whatever. You know, what, what's your plan? And so many people just don't have a plan. It, and it's, it's so, it sounds so simple, but that's the hardest thing. It's having that plan and being ready for it, being ready to execute it. Because it's, it's this, what, what's the cliche? It's, you know, luck is a combination of preparation and preparedness, right? Uh, practice or preparation or something like that, right? You can kind of create your own luck. And I think that's, you know, for any business that's getting started, that's kind of your, it has to be your mentality is that when something comes along, you have to be ready for it. 
And if you're not ready for it, you can't take advantage of it. Now you're stuck and you have nowhere to go. And in the case of carrying an inventory of a product, now you just have stuff boxes stacking up in a warehouse with nowhere for it to go without that preparedness to sell. Perfect example of this is, you know, typically we don't distribute MTGA wines. This is a very down home experience. This literally happened in the last week. Um, we have a few friends uh, around the country that have small distributorships uh, that we've worked with very well in the past. And it's something that we're trying to kind of reopen still post COVID and get our wines um, in, in certain markets uh, around the country. And it just so happened, you know, I'm in talks with one of them. And the next, no kidding, the next week, a group of folks come out from the Eastern Seaboard and they're like, oh, well, we have these two restaurants in this state. We are opening one more in this state. And we have three more that we're going to be opening over the next basically five to seven years. We want to try and find a way to get your wines in here. And it just so happened. I'm like, oh, I just reached out to the guys that I work with who sell our wine in those states. Let me hit them up and let them know that we've got this basically baked in. And now we can just pounce. And now wine is moving, right? Just being prepared, having a plan and saying, hey, I can make this happen for you, creating those opportunities. That's the hardest thing to do. It's so simple, but at the same time, it's so hard for some people, for some reason, to have that sort of plan to sell what you're making. I, I, I don't care if it's wine. I don't care if it's uh, hats. I don't care if it's action figures. Like, where are they? If you're on the, if you're watching me on YouTube, I'm trying to point to what's on top of my computer. These little guys. Um, art, whatever, whatever the case is, you have to have some sort of plan because your friends and family will buy from you once just because they support you, right? After that, after you've used up that Christmas card list, you gotta have new blood coming in to buy your product. And if you don't, you're gonna be dead in the water. So it's one thing to make the stuff and it's one thing to enjoy the, the romance and the excitement behind harvest and bottling and having a wine finally ready to go. But the hardest thing about it is that business plan and figuring out how you're going to sell it and where you go from there. Not only that, how you kind of weave and adjust and going back to the first question of you know why we stay small i can turn on a dime much like that you know distributorship you know and trying to get some wine back out to the eastern seaboard and i'm into some restaurants and, and retail shops it's like oh we are ready we can do this we can pounce on this we're just we have this built into our business and if we need to execute it boom we can do so it was a beautiful moment sometimes it almost feels like i know what i'm doing it's outstanding all right, the last question. Well, maybe not the last one. We'll see see how much time we have left. Uh, this one might be a can of, actually, I'm gonna try, we're gonna do one more after this because this one actually is going to, this is gonna be the, the Dylan Mulvaney, you know, in marketing kind of thing, as well as the SVB collapse that happened. Uh, we got a big old current events kind of thing. So uh, with the SVB failure and collapse, as well as the Dylan Mulvaney fall with Bud Light, how is that impacting the wine, alcohol business when it comes to marketing, business, and all that good stuff? Um, I paraphrase that a bunch. It was a very in-depth, kind of detailed question, but um, the SVV thing, let's get into that first and foremost, because that one's turned out it's a, it was a lot easier to deal with, and that is that they got bailed out. Turns out, despite the inverse ratio of investments that they had and how they were over leveraged, right, with their VC, uh, venture capital funds, um, 
they still got bailed out and it's been a non-issue. Uh, for those that don't know, uh, Silicon Valley Bank actually, they had, I think they were the first bank with like a proper like wine division. And there were, are a lot of wine brands and labels that ha do their banking with them. And when they shut down, it sent ripples through the wine industry. I got calls from clients and friends who are in the accounting and banking world. And they're like, listen, if anyone needs anything, let us know. We'll try and help and do whatever we can. Uh, and But all of them also said, you know, this is likely just a wait until this bank sells off the assets and the loans or, or whatever. And they ended up getting bailed out anyway. So it, realistically, it wasn't that it was a big deal obviously good old fashioned bank run. Um, but it ended up not having nearly the impact that many people thought it was going to. Um, you know, those, those first few days when we were finding out about this, I think, I feel like we were up in Tahoe when all this was happening. And like, we don't do any banking with SVB. So it didn't affect us any way, shape or form. Uh, but I know plenty of friends that do. And it was just shoot, can we get access to them? And, oh, by the way, our tasting rooms opened all weekend. All that money is going directly into these accounts that we now don't have access to. We don't know if we're going to be able to get that money back. And luckily, I have a, a very good friend that works very high up in kind of the accounting world, like even like forensic accounting type stuff for very big companies. And he was, in essence, of the opinion that, yeah, this is scary, but this is something that will shake out. It might take time. But hopefully, based on whatever business you have running, you can use the 250K that's insured by the FDIC. Uh, use that, get that immediately, cover what costs you have. But for, I mean, for some businesses, what, 250K is like a day or two, maybe less, right? Depending on how big they are. So for the big guys, man, that's something else. For the smaller guys, is a little bit less of an issue because they might have been, you know, underneath, well, you know, what is technically federally insured. Um, but it was wild. It was wild kind of getting thrown into the real world of business and bank runs and things of that nature. It was just absolutely wild. And I mean, I think what was even just crazier is that it just kind of, it happened and then assets started getting sold as parts of SVB were getting absorbed into other banks and that are backed by other banks. And it's like nothing, I feel like nothing. I mean, there's not been a peep about it in the industry for like a few weeks. I'm sure there are still a couple of people that are like really trying to dial it and figure things out and, you know, talk about it and figure it out. But man, it's like, it's been radio silence probably for the better part of like two, three weeks, you know, since it happened. Uh, it's kind of wild. It, it just kind of like came. It was like, oh my God, we're freaking out. And then it was gone. And like as quickly as it was here because of how it all eventually just shook down. So um, it definitely, it potentially had some outrageous ramifications more so in the venture capital world because of how much cash this bank had on hand. Uh, it was, you look, I think it was like Roku of all things had like five, no, it, it was, it was like tens of millions of dollars in the bank, which is just crazy considering that, you know, technically only 250 K would be federally backed or insured. Um, so they could have lost all of that, but they got bailed out. So turns out mid-sized banks that could potentially, uh, you know, send ripples through greater economies, get the bailout too. It's not just the big guys like in, uh, uh, 08, 9, 10, right? So apparently these mid-sized ones can, uh, they get the, they get the benefit of the doubt every once in a while too.
But yeah, it was that was a tough couple of days because there were wineries that simply didn't have access to their bank accounts, couldn't pay their bills, couldn't didn't have access to cash. It was like just whew, it was rough and tumble. But the, everyone seems to have gotten through it. And like I said, there just really hasn't been a peep about it since. So, in fact, we got an email from the SVB uh, a couple days ago because they do probably the most comprehensive like survey and status of the industry kind of seminar. Um, it's actually some really great information about kind of broad market trends within wholesale, within direct-to-consumer. They do a really great job of kind of walking us through some of that info. Um, some of that we are going to get into as we started to see some statistics kind of come out this spring about, you know, uh, the post-COVID years of 21, 22, 23, and kind of what trends are happening. We're going to geek out about that uh, in an upcoming episode as well to kind of give you some more kind of uh, insider trading into kind of what we look at within the wine industry and the world of hospitality. So um, it seems like they're back. I actually have a friend of mine that I went to college with. We were on the rowing team together. He works for SVB back east and we were emailing back and forth uh, just briefly. And he was like, yep, craziest couple of weeks I've ever had in my professional career. I'm like, no doubt that had to be a little wild, a little wild. All right, so we're going to talk about it. We are going to talk about it in a longer episode, this whole Dylan Mulvaney thing, which and we're, I'm taking, I think, a stance that and having a conversation that no one else is having is that people took this the, you know, trans inclusion route, you know, how great we want to, you know, Bud Light came out and said the Mark, Mark the gal who's in marketing um, who I think has been put on leave at this stage. Uh, yeah, we'll get into that. Uh, is now officially put on leave, says we are, we're trying to move away from just like this frat boy culture. They released their press release saying, oh, we're Bud Light, we want to bring people together over a beer and not divide people. Okay. Okay. It, it, it was funny that... Uh, I guess it wasn't funny, but it was interesting that this came up when I was in Houston and it was, it was just a point blank question of how has this from a marketing perspective within the alcohol industry, has it affected wine? And the short answer is no, it hasn't. Um, I think you do have marketing departments uh, for certain companies that are pumping the brakes on projects, much like Anheuser-Busch and InBev did. They paused all of their influence relationships after they saw a huge, uh, what is it, their market cap decrease, something like six million or six billion dollars that's a tough pill to swallow because uh, I think this I think it's old data but from like 2017 shortly after InBev acquired Budweiser and Heiser but for those that don't know Budweiser hasn't been Budweiser for years uh, they got purchased by InBev a much larger the largest beer producer in the world um and have been owned by them since 2017. So it's been eight years they've been under new management, basically. Um, and I think at that point, their market cap was something like $55 billion, which I'm sure has gone up significantly since then. But let's just, let's say, just for the sake of argument, that $6 billion is roughly a 5% drop, right? Just for the sake of argument. It might be more, it might be less. I haven't looked up that number. I'm going to try and get all these facts and figures down in the... Uh, April episode, or sorry, the May episode that we're going to dedicate to this. Um, so they, they see, you know, big losses coming. Um, they pause all their marketing, you know, marketing efforts to figure out. They put the gal who was in charge of this campaign on leave. A bunch of stuff happens. This doesn't, ha this has not sent any ripples through our industry 
other than I'm sure there are marketing departments that have been trying to figure out, you know, what to, you know, how to market this, because this is what marketing departments do. How do we capture new communities of consumers and get them to buy into what we do? That's what this is all about. It's if this is what we're going to get into in a couple of weeks is InBev and this marketing decision to put Dylan Mulvaney on a can had nothing to do with inclusion. It had everything to do with capturing more dollars from consumers. This is pure and simple just uh i'm trying to shoot i completely blanked on the word virtue signaling that's that's all that it is it's all that it is uh because if they actually cared they wouldn't have paused their marketing efforts they would have continued it and they would have tried to market this to their current consumers but when artists are canceling it from their uh tour dates and stadiums are getting rid of this beverage you see billions of dollars potentially being lost interesting how how that money changes everything very very quick so um this hasn't this is going to have long-term ramifications for marketing certain products within any industry not just beer um, or wine or the alcohol industry in general but this is going to send this was a hey here's what happens and here's how the largest beer producer in the world relaxed to that kind of reacts to that kind of pushback, which, in my opinion, was not a very good look, especially if they were trying to do this for the sake of uh, inclusion and and whatnot. Which it's clear that's not where their hearts were. Their hearts were set on the dollar signs, and they've very willingly thrown those that were in charge of this under the bus. Uh, to try and remedy uh, their losses that they now have. So it's a, that is a mess. The SVB thing was kind of crazy for a couple of days. This marketing thing is going to be interesting from, you know, from behind the curtain of, of the alcohol industry. And I'm, we're dedicating a whole episode to it. Like I said, I know I'm like a month late to that conversation, but damn it, it's, it's going to be an interesting one. And I think realistically... There are a lot of conversations being had that are simply missing the boat. And for those of you who don't understand how marketing works and the real intentions that InBev has behind this marketing campaign, I'm going to kick those doors down and we're going to talk about it because this this kind of thing makes me angry. It does. It does. Um, you know, when things are done in the name of inclusion and... Uh, uh, inclusion and um, equality and it's very clear no this is about the dollars and nothing else and they I mean they show their true colors already it's it's yeah they, they already did. it's 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 a done deal and we're going to get into why that is in a couple episodes so we call that a teaser in the business from what I understand so you're going to have to tune back in at some point this is how I capture more more views and downloads we talk about what we're going to talk about and I say, we'll get there, I promise. <laughs> uh, all right, what else do we got? We got time for one more. We got time for one more quick one. Let's see. Let me bring up my list of questions since we got a little bit of extra time here. Uh, all right. I also have my list of questions that I have already addressed because I'm sure there's going to be some overlap. You know, kind of is what it is. You know, we'll, we're definitely going to try to make sure we don't have any repeats, but we may, uh, we may here and there. So let me make sure that I, I'm going to try not to do that in the first couple of months. We're going to try and hit new topics every time that we can, just just for the sake of it. Uh, all right. 
Oh, oh, this is a good one. Oh, I like this one. Okay, so this happened. Um, this is this is interesting. Is there's there are wineries and places that are doing this and they're doing really really well with it. Um, but why is the wine and oh, there's one of those winces. I twisted a little bit. Oh man, this back thing is a pain in the butt. Um, why are wineries so behind the times when it comes to technology? You know, people are still filling out paper order forms. Uh, you still, you don't have, you know, tablets and things as widely available um, in small wineries. Uh, why are the customer systems and software so out of date? This is, oh, this is, oh, I love it. I love it. Here's why, long story short, we'd rather spend money on grapes and barrels and making wine rather than the technology. It, it's really that simple. Um, right now, the cost of a lot of these systems are simply not, that juice is not worth the squeeze for many, many places. I mean, shoot, we don't use the best CRM ourselves, and there are a lot of people that don't um, because, frankly, I just want really good accounting software. The CRM stuff, I can I can pull a spreadsheet and sort and filter through things, no problem. That's that's pretty quick and easy to do. Um, there are some CRMs that have that kind of built in, where it's like, oh, I want to search for customers within a hundred mile radius of this zip code, and they can print out that you know report for you. Uh, there are others with certain like customer tags of like, here are all of our Cabernet buyers, here are the Merlot buyers, here are the white wine buyers, and so on. Um, there's really you know great things that are in some of these systems. Um, to be completely honest, I've been out and away from utilizing a lot of these for about five years, um, but I've had experience with uh, AMS, which to my knowledge is still in essence a Microsoft DOS program. It's insane that winery, it's, it's more of an inventory software and accounting soft, not, I wouldn't even call it an accounting software, but it can do that and it can process orders and all these other things. But the fact that people still use it is beyond me. It seems like it's so out of date. No, I mean, no hate. I actually used to, you know, do a lot of work with them and, uh, they were definitely making big pushes to improve their systems, but man, it's compared to what we have today and what they're trying to constantly update is kind of wild. I, again, it's been a few years. Um, I hope that they've been able to, they, they, I remember talking about some of the upgrades and things they wanted to make, and I hope they've been able to make them um, because it, it was a fine system, but just behind the times, and they were playing a lot of catch up, it felt like. Um, and it just is what what it was. I think like Wine Direct might be one of the better ones right now. E-seller solutions, like there are a handful of just software companies that have all this stuff kind of dialed in. The problem is, and this has been my bone to pick with all of them, is that they're all there's always like some giant pitfall. Like there, it's not like there's this little quirky thing that you have to just you, there's a quick like bypass for. No, there's always something in that system that makes it like truly awful and a pain in the butt to work with and it, it, that's been the case you know any any one of these but it's, it's no different than any other piece of software like there are just certain things certain programs that are better at doing certain things than others um but within the wine industry the biggest reason that it's such an issue is that the integrations suck they've gotten better they have gotten a lot better but between we need you know an accounting and point of sale software um, hopefully you're, if, if you're using a different one for accounting, now those have to link up and you need to be able to get all that data into your accounting software for sales and tax purposes and all that kind of stuff. 
um, you need compliance software because we have 50 different sets of rules that we need to work with depending on what state we're shipping to. So you have to have that compliance piece plugged in there. Then you have to have uh, fulfillment software. And this is where I think WineDirect and I think maybe Copper Peak um, have a leg up on some people is that a lot of that flows really, really well. I think e-sellers, when I worked with them, they always had a good job of this as well. They tried, to, everyone has tried to kind of put a lot of this in-house and like WineDirect and Copper Peak have like their own warehousing and all this other stuff. So like they're, they're, that data flows through those systems quite a bit better. And I believe AMS was kind of the same way. Uh, E-Sellers was just at the time a software company. So it was like, oh, you have to have this software and then that plugs into you know, this, you have to have this plugin or add on to get it to transmit to your warehouse. And then your warehouse has to take that. And it was like an extra, there was like an extra step in there at the time. Uh, again, it's been years. I'm sure these things have changed. Um, but because of the multiple, multiple facets and the multiple layers from the point of sale to shipment and fulfillment, and I guess it's really no different than any other business, but for some reason, I always felt like the wine industry was just behind the times. Like all this stuff just, it never flows very, very well. Uh, the data migration for the longest time would, uh, the data migrations we used to do from one system to another was just brutal. I mean, there, there were times where we had to go line by line for like 10,000 customers to make sure things didn't get jumbled up. And then we would migrate that data and it would still be jacked up when we have to I mean hours and hours and hours of time spent um, doing this stuff so a lot of wineries one they're not willing to pay for it because it's clunky to begin with two you know it's just easier for us and is cost us less time and money to just kind of do it the old-fashioned way let me just download a spreadsheet of our customers I'll sort by who's bought Cabernet and that's it is it two extra steps? Yeah, sure. But I'm just looking at an Excel spreadsheet and I spent two minutes doing that rather than calling customer service because the system's not running the report that we want to do and these people didn't get filtered out and so on. So I don't know. It's For some reason, there's always been this clunkiness around software within the wine industry. And I know these guys have gotten a lot better. These systems have gotten a lot better. But the... like. I mean, I mean, for me, just the cost benefit analysis of how much time it's going to take me to get all that data migrated over, hook up all these other systems. I'm like, it's just not worth it. Like we're, for us, we're just too small. Like we don't need it. We just don't. It, would it be convenient? Would it make life maybe a little easier once we got it all set up? Yeah, but it's, uh, it's just not that big of a deal. You know, it's not something that we focus on. I'd rather spend that money going somewhere else. Um, yeah, some of these, I don't know who's doing this, but I know a few of them are, is that a lot of these companies now, rather than like a subscription, just like monthly fee for their systems, it's they take like a cut, like a percentage or two of like your overall sales as well, which I'm not a huge fan of. Um, I, that's a great way to build in, you know, profitability. It's like, hey, if you're selling a bunch of wine, we make money. That's how this works. I'm like, okay, I get it. Um, but it, it's one of those things for like small labels. It's like, we're so... It's the margins are rough to begin with to eat another like percent or two or three away is just I'm not cool with that, you know, especially on a small scale as we are, you know, maybe 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 there I know there are some companies that have like certain tiers and things where it's like, oh, if you're X amount of cases in production and sales and it's this, of course, then it ramps up or down, you know, based on all that. Um, yeah, it's. The technology side of things for, for the big companies, it's one thing because just the volume of people you're seeing 
and the amount of business you're doing for us small guys I don't mind running I don't mind playing with a spreadsheet it's really not that big of a deal I have the time to be able to do it you know if we were 10 times our size we it would be a different story it just would be right if we were making 10,000 if shoot if we were making three or four like 3,000 cases where it starts to like ramp up at that point you're starting to have to dial things in a little bit more so even if we doubled our size now we're towing that line and it would probably be a very different conversation the smaller you get the easier it is as long as the systems i mean we use you know just some basic you know through squarespace hosting for our website we use mailchimp for our email automations like it's basic stuff and they integrate really they those two things integrate and it's they're both very turnkey and easy to use and edit and do all these things and that's perfect you know, for the accounting side of things, you know, we use our we use an accounting software for everything else that just fits the bill. It does just fine. Works. It works great. As a matter of fact, it works really, really well. Um, and they're actually that reporting through that software has gotten a lot better over the last couple of years too, uh, which is great. Which is really, really great. So, um, I guess the long, you know, long story longer. Uh, the reason why wineries don't invest a huge amount in technology is that the juice isn't worth the squeeze for very many of them, um, unless they're really technically inclined. You look at like Paul Maud's Vineyards and their their cellar. Oof, if you don't know about that, it's it's bonkers. Uh, it's pretty crazy. Um, the tech that they have in that place to be able to, in essence, run that entire facility from an iPad. It's pretty, there's some cool toys in there. Um, so there are those that dive headfirst into that uh, technological realm. There are many of us that are just old school and be like, you know what? It's wine. We'll figure it out as we go. So, all right, that has been the April Q and A. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in. Um, hopefully, that all shedded some more insight and uh, answered some questions that some of you may or may not have. Uh, again, I'm very excited to get into this whole marketing conversation, kind of centered around this Dylan Mulvaney thing. Um, and realistically, what I think you need to be paying attention to when it comes to stuff like that. It's going to be a, a very different conversation than what many people um, have really tackled. Um, I might fast track that and try and do that. The, it's either going to be the first week of May next week um, or the second week of May. Um, I got to get that episode recorded, edited, and uh, yeah get through it. So that'll be coming up here soon. Uh, please remember to uh, share this with your friends. If you have anyone else who's into wine, wanting to learn more, just talk some shop and get to know the world of wine and hospitality a little better. Please uh, forward this along uh, to them. Uh, the more shares and downloads and stuff we get, the more we can do. And the more input we get for our Q&As, other episodes, and all that good stuff. So uh, it's something I do uh, do hope that this really becomes kind of an open uh, conversation and more of a dialogue uh, for some of these episodes, especially these Q&As and the live shows uh, that happen on the third week of the month. So thank you all again so much for tuning in. And this has been another episode of the Wind Up Podcast. We'll catch you later.